Hey guys and welcome to the Because Maybe podcast, the podcast that takes a look at all things 90s and answers some of the most important questions of the decade. Because maybe if you want to be my lover, don't get with my friends. That's kind of wrong, you know, I just, you know, kind of weird. Uh, I'm your host John Conley. Thank you, whoever you are, wherever you are, for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. We have a great, great show ahead of you. We have this week's Cultural Impact, where we take another look at Britpop, and we go behind the music and look at four of the biggest albums during the Britpop era. And we also have a special tribute to one musical icon who was sadly taken away from us in the early 90s, and an announcement that I will make at the end of the show. If you guys want to support this podcast, why don't you follow us on social media? Uh, All of our links are in the description of the podcast. You can tap on them, click on them, whatever it is that you do. Uh, We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Google Plus for all you Google listeners out there. Uh, we, you know, we, we're trying to be everywhere. And we're trying to um, build our audience as best we can. And you know, I can't thank you guys enough. Again, you've outstripped my expectations in how many people have listened, how many people have downloaded. And again, from the bottom of my heart, I really, really want to thank everybody. It sounds like I'm a little rushed to do this part. Uh, kind of am. Not because it's Tuesday night and I'm trying to get this podcast out tomorrow and I'm rushing. No, no, no. It's nothing to do with that. Uh, this bit will be short anyway because we have a lot to talk about this week. And we have a very, very good discussion. Me and my wife. She is a Britpop connoisseur just like myself. She loves all things British. And this was a natural to bring her in. Uh, but I wanted to talk before we moved on to this week. I wanted to talk about last week. Last week, you guys gave me the most feedback I'd had on a specific episode and a specific topic. I want to thank every single person who answered the question this week. Um, I thought it was going to be more controversial than it actually was. I was expecting people to go, yes, of course, it's Britpop 2. And fortunately for me, I was right. Britpop and Radiohead... And not bedfellows. Isn't that fantastic? You don't believe me? Let's ask Storm. Storm said, hell no. What about Sarah Jane? Wikipedia says no. Adrian says, Britpop is a construct? Yes, but musically? No. Patrick with a simple no. Gavin says, misery pop. Matt says, absolutely, definitely not. You cannot define them as any genre either. Unique? Maybe. But never Britpop. And Gareth replied with, absolutely f- not. So uh, I thank everybody for getting back and, you know, thank you for agreeing with me. <laughs> That's the most consensus I've ever had since I was voted least funniest in school. Um, also, Cat, again, thank you once again, Cat, for taking the time. I know how busy you guys are. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for once again feeding back with us. And you replied about uh, Radiohead. It's British and it's popular, but I wouldn't classify it as Britpop. We always thought of them as alternative. Fair point. Cat would go on to say... So, the definition of Britpop is not at all what mine is. I guess it's an American thing. To me, the bands that made up the majority of our list were considered a mixture of alternative and just plain rock, at least in the circle of friends. Uh, When I heard Britpop, I automatically thought of the Spice Girls. And this is something we're going to touch upon next week, but again, I I want to clarify. Just absolutely clarify. When I'm talking about Britpop, I'm talking about the genre of music rather than the term that was thrown to any popular British act in the mid to late 90s. Because there, there, is, there is a subtle difference. One of them, as I mentioned, is based around uh, rock acts, pop acts who came from working class areas and formed in a certain way and wrote songs about a certain way. And the Spice Girls and Radiohead and, as I mentioned, the Manic Street Preachers don't follow in that format. 
So, guys, thank you once again for, you know, taking the time and, you know, feed, give me the feedback that I needed and also proving me right, which, again, as I mentioned before, is a very, very rare occurrence in my life. Um, you, can ask, you can ask the wife, uh, as you can tell by the conversation that we're about to have. Um, but, um, guys, if you have anything that you want to uh, request, any uh, episode requests, anything that you want to plug yourself, anything that you want to give me that you don't necessarily feel talking about in, in quote-unquote public is what you're looking for, Shoot me an email, because maybe podcast at gmail.com. I will read your email. I will gladly reply to you personally. And, you know, we'll go ahead from there. Um, I also want to thank everybody who's been reading our blogs the last couple of weeks. We have uh, we had one on Damon Alban the, uh, last week. This week we have one on Jarvis Cocker. I guess you don't need to be a rocket surgeon to figure out uh, which personalities we're going to be talking about on the next blog. But before that happens, we've got another blog coming out, and I'll get to that later on in the show. So, for now... I take you over to the dynamic duo, and that's me and my wife, and we're going to have a conversation about the four biggest albums of Rip Up. Cultural Impact. This week, Cultural Impact, we take a second look at the Rip Up scene. Uh, this week, we're going to look at four of perhaps the best albums of the Britpop era, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the person who is the one keeping me sane, even though I'm driving her insane, my wife, Miss Sarah Connolly. Sarah, how are you? I am wonderful. How are you, dear? I am doing good. Thank you for taking the time out of your hectic schedule. And (laughs) when I say hectic schedule, guys, I mean a real, real hectic schedule to kind of talk about one of the biggest music scenes in modern history. Oh, you wouldn't have been able to keep me away from this. Like, now, for yeah. a little bit of a background, uh, we kind of met through our mutual love of certain bands and certain artists, and I could think of nobody better who could sit down and tell me that I'm wrong in life and in this part <laughs> of the world to begin with. So, um, We're a very opinionated family. We are very, very, very opinionated. <laughs> and uh, But it is, it is good to have Sarah on board. Sarah's actually been helping a lot. Sarah is our wonderful blog writer. So any spelling mistakes, don't do them my way, send them my way. Yes, okay. No, spelling mistakes in regards to blogs, send them my way. Spelling mistakes in regards to social media posts, oh, that's all on John. That is all on me because, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, it is great to have you on the board. And so let's let's dive right into it. Uh, we've got four albums that we're going to be talking about today. Okay. Uh, What's a Story, Morning Glory by Oasis. A Different Class by Pulp. Park Life by Blur. And Urban Hymns by The Verve. Yes. Now, would you agree that when you consider Britpop, those are four of the biggest albums you would think of? Or at least some of the biggest albums you would think of? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the top four that would come to the mind of, of most. Yes. And sh- the, the fact that as well that five of the, the, the guys in these bands were the main faces of the movement of the uh, scene. Right. So um, we will kick off, and I'm going to move our notes around just a little bit. Ooh, shaking it up, aren't we? We're going to shake it up right away, and okay. we're going to talk about Urban Hymns Ooh, by The Verve. yes. And this, as most people don't know, is The Verve's third album. Yes. Sold over 5 million copies and was released on the 29th of September 1997. Yes. That's actually a couple of friends' birthdays of mine, believe it or not. Um <laughs> Richard Ashcroft was the main songwriter of The Verve. How, how, how do you think he did lyric-wise? Well, lyrically, I mean, Ashcroft has always been a brilliant lyricist. And 
Noel Gallagher has gone on record many a time. I mean, if you look at Some Might Say, which was written, if I'm not mistaken, about Ashcroft. Cast No Shadow. Cast No Shadow. Excuse me. See, we're very opinionated, but we were able to be corrected in our family. It's wonderful. Richard Ashcroft was not uh, itching in the kitchen with his dog. and the, yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I would like to um, interject that I have been battling the flu for over a month, so I'm on cold meds. That's a fair point. If, if last week I can get uh, Tia Carrera's name wrong at nine o'clock in the morning, yes. you can battle on cold meds. Yes. For so. two weeks in a row. Uh, <laughs> but hey, Rich hey, Ashcroft, hey. okay, yes. lyricist, I mean, he, he was, he, you could say he was the best lyricist in the Britpop year, would you not? Um, uh, that's fair. That's fair. He's in the argument, at least. He's, he's, he's a yes. strong front runner. Yes. You could say. Um, he wrote very, very simple arrangements for this album, and in other cases, wrote real, real bombastic, out-of-the-box arrangements. I right. mean, you listen to something like Sonnet, right? Uh, uh, great yes. song. The drugs don't work. Great mm-hmm. song. But they're very, very simplistic. And yes, while he used the sample in Bittersweet Symphony, it was still, he still had to write the arrangement and everything around that. Yes. And so, you know, the fact that they got back together to release an album to begin with is astounding. Because if you remember, they split up uh, in between 95 and 97. And due to infighting, and Richard Ashcroft believed that he couldn't do another album with another group of musicians outside of the Verve. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're in a band, that's your family. And so even when you want to, you know, smash them upside the head with a guitar once in a while, (laughs) um, they're still your family, and that's who you record with. Unless you're the Gallagher brothers, but that's a whole different And we story. will get to that yeah, here in yeah. a little while here in a minute. Um, but, I mean, well, one of the things we spoke about in the first episode was kind of filling in spaces. You right. know, um, I mentioned how Grunge filled in when Freddie Mercury passed and when Kirk Cobain passed. You had, um, uh, not Grunge, but um, Britpop itself filling in. Uh, right. Would you say that in 1997, uh, after Be Here Now had kind of flopped... After Blur had walked away, uh, Pulp were in the studio working on their next album, which would deviate from the Britpop sound. Do you think that the Verve kind of stepped in there and filled a void that was starting to form in the movement? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a fair statement. I mean, here's the thing. Um, there were a ton of fans that were, I don't want to say trained, but... We we had our ears fine tuned for a certain sound, predispositioned, right, right. This 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 was our jam, and so all the makers of our jam had sort of popped off where you know yeah wherever they went, and so here comes uh you know here here, here comes these guys on the scene, and for those of us in the U.S. at least you know uh, TRL or whatever you happen to be listening to, all of a sudden you get this big you know instrumental you know the violins from bittersweet symphony that are so iconic you know popping up and and then there's these guys and oh look oh they're accented and oh they have the same haircuts and oh it sounds just yes so you know that they they definitely um were primed to fill a hole that the other bands had left wide open and they did so brilliantly. And they they did so brilliantly, as we'll get to here in a second. But uh, you mentioned Bittersweet Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the controversy that surrounds that. Yes. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Verve had agreed to a six-note sample 
of a Rolling Stones song. Yes. And they use 12 notes. Uh, I think that was, I think that's it, yes. It's, it's, the, it's the, the, the whole string sequence. Do, 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 you know, all that stuff. And, do, 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 do. and that's 12 notes, not the six. And they went to court because of that. And Keith Richards and Mick Jagger took 100% of the royalties. Yes, because Keith Richards and Mick Jagger need your money. Yeah, they do. Well, Mick does. He's got all that child support. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because right around then, he was was still, yeah. He was still Jerry Hall, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, Jerry Hall was pregnant around that time. And then there was the the woman in South America. And yeah, I mean. Mick didn't need the money. No, he didn't need the money. Yeah, Mick's, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's probably why they're still on tour today. But um, to be fair to um, Keith Richards. Right. The man who will outlive us all. Yes, Keith Richards, Cher, and cockroaches. Those are the things that will survive the apocalypse. And, you know, that's not too far away. Um, basically, but <laughs> Keith Richards has come out and said they wrote the song, they should get the rights to it. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, they, they, they wrote 12 notes of a song. Exa- I don't mean, I, let, me, let me rephrase that, sorry. Keith Richards said that the Verve wrote the song, they should get, uh, oh yes. I mean, they should get some credit for it. It's kind of like uh, a couple of months ago. I was it was a couple of years ago. Tom Petty and his song Sam Smith for Sam Smith. Yeah. Yes, they didn't want necessarily all credit on uh, over the song and all the royalties. They just wanted hey. Well, it's, well, we that wasn't a, Petty. That was Petty's um, songwriting partners. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. Tom Petty was a big yeah. Follower, Petty even went you know. on record and said that you know it's just one of those things. I mean, he has. People wanted to stand up for their portion of the pie, you know, whatever that is. So, you know. All of the tracks, this is one of the, the few albums of the Britpop era, and I'm including the three that are on this uh, list right. that we're going to be talking, the other three that were on the list, where all 12 tracks were solid. I mean, and what I mean by oh, yeah. that, and what I mean by that is they were all on the same level. Any one of those 12, could aside have been from... singles. Yeah, aside from the three we used, could have been singles and big smashes. Now, a lot of the other albums, you couldn't pick songs off and go, that's a smash, that's a smash, that's a smash. And we'll get to that here when we talk about Morning Glory. Okay. But um, it was, it was, that's what made it a good album. It was very, very solid and stout throughout. Right. Um, the songs that were written during the session that didn't make it to B-sides uh-huh. actually became the, the spine of Richard Ashcroft's solo album. Yes, so, I remember that solo album. Uh, song for the Lovers, great song. Yes. That might have been on this album. That could have been on that album. So I'm thinking the three songs that I know for Richard Ashford's solo album, Money to Burn, Song for the Lovers, and Come On People, We're Making It Now. Right. Any of those three, do you think it would improve the album? Or do you think it would detract if it had to replace something? Uh, song, song for the Lovers definitely could have been on there. Um, But, I mean, here's the thing. It's how much awesome do you need to put in one record? True. I, but I'm a, I'm a big believer if you've got the awesome, you put it on there. Yeah, but then you end up, you know, releasing things like Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which... That's a fair point. That yeah. is a fair point. I mean, at some point, there's only so much stuff you can put on an album. That's true. That is true. That's um, why you have box sets like 50 years later. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> this, out of the four albums we, 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 we're going to be talking about, this was one of the two that completely and utterly smashed America. Right. Which was unusual for a Britpop band in the sense that it became a big hit. Now, I know that the British bands came into America and, you know, they were well known, but this album smashed it. Well, yeah, it, and that was led with Bittersweet Symphony. 
Yeah, I think that, that was a great choice for a single. Probably well, yeah, because any of the others, I mean, here's the thing. You had your Britpop diehards here in the U.S., like myself and, and a lot of my friends. But um, you would be hard-pressed to just go up to your average American, I mean, yep. mu- music fan. I mean, take myself. I mean, I'm 36. Um, and, you know, an American female in, in the southern part of the United States. Yes. Right? So if you were to just go around and ask, you know, um, my contemporaries, go, go find ladies who lunch, you know, go around and, and, and ask my contemporaries to name um, an Oasis song. And they probably could. Wonderwall, probably. What, well, Champagne Supernova was big here. So, uh, and Morning Glory and itself, more, Yeah. So, um, you know, they can name you an Oasis song. Blur, they can name, you know, they would probably go, Woohoo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, that Woohoo song. Um, and that would probably oh, be, uh. <laughs> right? But that would probably be the, uh, the only one that they would know off the top of their head. Um, the Verve, they, they, could, they could probably tell you um, Bittersweet Symphony. Bittersweet Symphony was on the uh, soundtrack to Cruel Intentions, too, so that... that didn't hurt that, it. Right. That helped. And also, it's been used in a couple of uh, commercials as well. Did yeah. Nike use it? I think so. And I know AT&T used all around the world for Oasis. A- yeah. AT&T, probably oh, used, AT&T yeah. used everything that they could get their hands on. Well, yeah. But, um, but I said all that to say, ask an American female or ask a Southern American person. Nine times out of ten, you know, name another Britpop person. You know, they're not going to tell you Suede. They have no clue. They probably, they're not even going to be able to name you a pulp song. No. And that's a, that's a travesty in my opinion. Right. But, but um, if they you say Britpop, they're going to bust out and, and tell you the Spice Girls. Yes. And <laughs> as we discussed last week, that is not correct. Yeah. We and, we'll get to the, and we'll get to that next yes. week. But, um, yes, <laughs> be be prepared to be entertained by, uh, <laughs> by a high power in, debate on in, this in, one. Indignant Sarah is the best Sarah, I have to tell you guys. Um, <laughs> I'm awesome to ride around with when I have road rage because um, I yell a lot and <laughs> lay my hands around like a crazy person. Um, but no, I mean, the Verve, as far as, you know, Oasis were known for one or two songs and They're fighting fixed. amongst each yeah. other. Not, not even drugs here were, 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 they weren't known for that here. They were known for fighting. Yeah. And, you know, for a couple of songs. But as far as a British rock, you know, Britpop artist, the only ones that were known specifically for their sound and as a solid band would fall around with the Verve. That would pretty much be. And the irony of that is, is that the Verve did as much drugs and as much infighting as Oasis ever did, which is, which is, the, you know, they, they had as much. Yes, but the National Enquirer did not pick up on that. True. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was pre-TMZ. And if the Enquirer or the Globe didn't tell you, you didn't know. Uh, so when is Dr. Phil getting divorced? Mm. Um, <laughs> when indeed. But um, you make a good point about about that, and I just want to clarify, not clarify what you say, but add on to what you say. Right. Is that you, you are right. I mean, the, the bands, the British bands that came over here, which we'll talk about next week, that got the big exposure was more for their antics than the music, which is, in my opinion, is a shame. Right. But at the same time, the music that did come through was, you know, was what you'd expect because it was just as bi- the same Right. Bigness over both sides of the Atlantic. So, the rating for this album, in my opinion, is a solid 9 out of 10. I'll give you that. 9 out of 10. 
the best tracks or the most notable tracks, Bittersweet Symphony. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Drugs Don't Work. Yes. And Sonnet. Yes. Would you say that any other tracks? Would you go with something like Lucky Man or... Lucky Man's good. Um, I don't, The Drugs Don't Work. I mean, okay, that is a testament to the power of Richard Ashcroft's, you know, uh, songwriting. The man literally made a song, a love song, about, you know, how drug use won't help him get over his, you know, his his lady. So, I mean... If only... If only... I mean, it's... it's, I know where you're going with that. Stop. (laughs) But, um... Justine. (laughs) From Alaska. Uh, Yes, um... Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, there's a... uh, That's being cut. (laughs) No, there's an Easter egg for, for... I'll tell you what, if somebody can name what that's from... Right, hit us up on social media. If someone could get that reference that John just made, you get like a million and ten brownie points, dude. Because <laughs> we are some pop culture junkies, and we quote some obscure ish around our our house. So, um, yeah, but um, no, I mean, anybody who could make drug use sound sexy, yeah, that's and, and it's so not. But I mean, you know, it's just. That's just a testament to the power of him as a songwriter. So that's it for The Verve right now. We are now going to take a journey down south to everybody's favorite non-Cockney Cockneys, everybody's favorite working-class, middle-class heroes, uh, Blur. And we start talking about their third album, Park Life. Yes. Uh, two and a half million copies sold. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised by that number. Um, considering how big the, the, the singles were and how much they were talked about, it didn't even sell as much as The Verve urban hymns even though it was really several years later just it it's weird to me because everybody talks about blow 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 especially in that era and for blur is very much a singles band though that is true blur that, i that mean I because say. here's the thing i mean blur all right let me back up america buys albums correct it, well, okay well now in the digital age that might be changed but back in the day america bought albums we right. didn't really buy singles. Singles no. weren't, they weren't our jam. Um, so. Don't you do uh, charts by plays on the radio as opposed to actual hard copies of Well, it's all inclusive media. because it's known that, okay. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a radio, mesh, right? Radio play in the UK meant nothing. It right. Just, well, no, over here, radio is part of what gets you charted. Okay. So, um, but America is very, or was very at the time, Album based, yes. Whereas Blur is a very singles based band. I mean, wasn't I it Noel that. Gallagher that came around later that said he never bought a Verve album, but if they ever put out a box set of just singles, he'd be the first person in line to buy it. A Verve album or a Blur album? I'm sorry, a Blur album, guys. Remember, <laughs> this is Sarah on Cold Medicine. Cold Medicine. Yes, I know. <laughs> so, but I mean, because Blur are very much a yeah, and I can agree with a that. singles band. I mean, the rest take their singles off an album. Take Park Life. Yeah, as we'll get to in a second, I mean, Park Life as an album, I think, was a very, very good album. And, and we'll get to, to, to why I think it was good here in a minute. Um, it was released in April of 94. Right. And unlike the Verve album, which was mainly guitar-based with some a little bit of piano and a little bit of, I don't want to say psychedelia because that's a bad word to use. <laughs> but um, I'm trying to think of the wood and I can't think of the wood. But it, it did have a very, very haunting sound to a lot of right. guitars. Right. And very effects-based. Right. Um, this used more synthesizers, yes. Hammond organ, yes. saxophones, guitars. Yes. Exactly. Uh, Graham Coxon, fantastic <laughs> saxophonist, believe it or not. 
Uh, Damon Albin uh, played some guitar on here, but that was mainly, he mainly played the, the keys. I thought he was a very, very underrated guitarist as a rhythm player, but anything other than rhythm, he just couldn't do. Well, it, it, we've spoken before. I mean, um, Damon, you have to give Damon more credit where credit's due, because at the end of the day, once, you know, once you put Britpop to bed, yeah, right, um, internationally, Damon beat everybody. He did. He did. I mean, look at the Gorillas. The Gorillas, and you know they're in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's best-selling virtual band, and, and you know whatever virtual band means to you. But <laughs> I don't think there's too many, to right? I mean, but it, take the little cool-looking cartoon dudes aside. They w- the cartoon guys wouldn't have gone as far as they did if there wasn't solid music back into that. No, and that's true. And this is this is the thing I guess Damon Albarn did after. Um, in between the breakup and reformation of, of Blur, right, is he put more of his own personal music out there? If that makes sense, a lot of these songwriters, uh, as we mentioned with the Verve, a lot of the songs were made, uh, didn't make it onto the Verve album, but they made it onto the Richard Ashcroft solo album. Right. Uh, Noel Gallagher was infamous for saying that he had like a five or six shoeboxes full of material. That he had a shoebox done. He had a shoebox done. <laughs> and after you know, uh, I'll I'll get to that here in a minute. But uh, you know, uh, so yeah, he got more of his own personal stuff that I don't think the I don't say the Blue fans wouldn't have accepted, but it would have been too different even for for Blue. Maybe. And yeah. So you know, the Gorillas came out. I think one of the things about the Gorillas is while you could tell it was Damon Albarn singing. It came out at just the right time in the early 2002, 2003. Well, yeah, but, and, and the gorillas also have, I mean, a huge Hewitt influence on it as well. <laughs> exactly. And it's not just Damon Albarn in this. I think he transitioned more into, I don't want to say producer, but kind of, this is, this is my album with like a hundred other guest musicians on it. And I'm not going to take the, right. the, you know, we're going to put focus. Like I said last week, when it came to, uh, you know, certain actors and certain actors, you know, they were looking more at the characters rather than the, the big star behind it, I think. Gotcha. Um, it was rushed recording because Blue's record label, after Modern Life is Rubbish, which the only adjective I can use to describe is... Rubbish. rubbish. I thought it was a good album, but it's, it's possibly their weakest. <laughs> um, the band wanted a little bit of time to, to, to go in the studio and work at it. Right. But unfortunately, after the poor sales... Food records were about to drop them. Asking ye not receive. So they they rushed that recording and, believe it or not, pulled it out. It's got more energy than any of their other releases, including Leisure, which was very, very energetic. Yeah, that is something that you Brit people, really, really, you Brit people, listen to me. Um, That is something that you Brit people do really, really well. I mean, give you guys studio time and a deadline, and you guys can crank out, like, I mean, look at the early Beatle albums. True. I mean, which it was, uh, what was it? Please, please me. Yeah, that was done in like 12 hours. The entire album start to finish. The help album. Yeah, I mean, but please, please me was 12 hours start to finish in one studio because that's all they had. Yeah. Boom, that's it. But then again, recording was different back then. You basically recorded gems back then. Yeah, but still. Is a good thing. So, I mean, you, you know, you give you little British people. <laughs> I'm patting my head. What right do you now. mean, you people? Um, yeah, but I mean, you give. And I mean, they did that. They did that. A lot of you know, we mentioned the. I mentioned the Help album a minute ago. For right. those of you who don't know, uh, the Help album was a charity album. It was released in '95. I think so. Yes. And it featured 20 tracks that were mm-hmm. recorded on Monday, mixed on Tuesday, uh, pressed and mastered on Wednesday, 
sent out to the uh, record stores on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda strives to be the people who did that. <laughs> he wants to be bricked up. Well, no, I mean, like, people who put together <laughs> stuff like that. Because, I mean, even with this Puerto Rico stuff, he went from, like, you know, there, there, was a, there was a storm, and then 24 hours later, he's got a song, and then he's flying all over the country to get snippets from people. So, Holy. yeah, there's, yeah. The bane of my sleep, let me tell you. Uh, that's another story <laughs> for another day. A lot of this album was written uh, by Damon Albert in third person. He right. Tra- he transposed his personal lyrics onto different characters and different scenes. Mm-hmm. Listening back, could you tell he was kind of talking about himself in a lot of the things? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. That's, you know. Because I, c- I couldn't tell if he was talking about himself or if he was talking about people he knew and then making them into characters right. and so on and right. so forth. He admitted, like, for example, in the next album Blur did, which I will not speak of because it is a waste of vinyl. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. It's a dreadful album. Uh, he, uh, he, a lot of the songs he wrote about himself, but gave them to different characters. So, right. Um, the album is good, but it does have, unlike the Verve album, it does have its wobbles. Okay. There are a couple of tracks that really you could take out and not just string. Everything that's not a single, yes. Well, not necessarily, because there were some songs that weren't singles that were very, very good, like uh, Tracy Jacks. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very good song. Uh, Badhead is a good song, but you could do without Lot 105, which is the goofy right. instrumental at the end. Fun song, but I mean, after you have This Is A Lull, which is a really, really big anthematic song, excuse me, then you get this cheesy instrumental at the end of it. Right. Uh, it was a critically acclaimed album, and it was considered the first mainstream Britpop album, regardless of what came before it and who came before it. This is considered, you know, bang, this is Britpop. I can see that. And unlike unlike The Verve and unlike Oasis, who we'll talk to in a minute, this did not break any other major international markets. Right. This is a very, very European album, and more specifically, a very, very English album. It is quite the English album, yes. Notice I say English, not British, because yes. I can't think of of Scotsmen worrying about, you know, feeding the pigeons and the sparrows. Huh. And us Welsh don't care about civil service. Um, <laughs> seven out of ten? Fair? Fair. Yeah, fair. That's fair. Uh, notable tracks, obviously, Girls and Boys. Yes. Absolute banger of a song, as the kids say. Uh, end of the Century. Right. Which... Great song, but in 1999, Britain, Damon made a lot of money off that song, especially between October and January. <laughs> yes, that is, um, that, that's Damon's 1999. Yeah. Yeah. It was nothing special. Uh, Park Life, uh, great song. Phil Daniels, yes. the wonderful Phil Daniels, also known as Jimmy. Yes. As far as I'm concerned. And I mentioned This Is A Low. Great, great song. Very, very rock song. And perhaps the most English song on the album. Because who else could take a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic tune and write lyrics about the shipping forecast? If you don't know what the shipping forecast is, just ask an Englishman. They'll tell you what the shipping <laughs> forecast is. We will bounce around. Yes, we're very bouncy today. We're very bouncy. I had a specific order and I figured this it, the way I wrote it was not the best. So we, we tweak the order. That's yes. what we do. We're very spontaneous. We go to... Brrr, pulp. Bing! A different class. Okay. Their fifth album. Yes. The second album that broke mainstream music. And and with this, I'm going to touch back again on the fact that um, this is this is Pulp. Okay. I adore Pulp. Jarvis is freaking amazing. 
But pulp is another one of those that, you know, unless you were just really hip and cool, you didn't know about. Correct. Here. Um, I'd say the same thing in the UK, too. Um, yeah, but at least they were on the radio over there. True. Like, here's the thing. I never heard pulp. Like, I mean, I may have heard a snippet of a song here or there on a soundtrack or in the background yeah. or something, maybe. But I had really, um, I mean, I knew of them. But it wasn't until 1999 when I was visiting some friends of mine out in California. And we went to this awesome little um, resale shop, a CD resale shop, because that's what we did back then, kids, um, called Fingertips in uh, Long Beach. And so I went there and I had funds and I'm like, look, because Ned is just Ned is just a music connoisseur god. I mean, um, I know a lot, he's put a lot of his stuff digitally, but back then he had walls and walls of CDs and cases under his bed of CDs. And now he's a music writer, which, you know, it's, you'd figure that's a natural progression. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. But Ned is the bomb. So I walk in to this place with Ned and I'm like, point me. What albums can I not afford to live without? And, you know blessedly for myself he definitely introduced me to pulp so um yeah i mean pulp's one of those where it's it pulp is is definitely part of the brit pop movement but it's definitely they are definitely on the british end like you know the fall british end right because i mean and this is another thing we'll discuss next week but brit pop the perception of Britpop in the UK versus the perception of Britpop in the US are entirely two different things. Right. I mean, that's just, yeah. That's just, so, what, that's just what it is. Right. So, uh, door pulp. But I'm going to let you run with this one. True. Because, I mean, pulp, we mentioned pulp are very, very unknown in the United States. Jarvis is the ultimate hipster. Oh, God, he, yes. He is king hipster yes. of hipster town. I mean, just the tweed suits and the NHS glasses and the fact that he looks, you know... Uh, Session Baron Cohen, his L.E.G. Uh, character, said that uh, he looked like a child molester. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> and then proceeded to do the best parody of any song I've ever heard in my life, the Help the Agent parody. Yes. Um, I, to be honest, I've only listened to this album a few times. Okay. It's a very, very good album, but you are kind of right in the sense that it's a very, very singles-heavy album. Now, they only released three. Like The Verve, any of those songs could have been singles. Right. But the only three that are remembered are Common People. Mm-hmm. Disco 2000 and something's changed. Right. Um, it's a good album. In fact, it's a great album. It's absolutely critically acclaimed. Considered to be possibly the best album of the era. Um, it's, it's also the epitome. It's very, very British. It's very, very, you know, common people. You know common people. You, you've heard me sing that and play that so many times. Well, yeah, yeah. Common people talks about, you know, um, British perception of their working class by some rich foreign type, you know, and it ta- it, it's, it's, again, it's a story, it's embellished on, but um, it's just, it's a really, really good song, and it does, you know, hone in on what a lot of working class Brits felt like at the time, and even now, you know, that your life's out of control, there's nothing you can really do about it, and this is how we live, and well, we yeah, have to be it's also very relatable, though, I mean, Exa- yes, yes, it's very British, but it's also, I mean... It's related to anybody. Relatable to anybody who's who's known and lived with the struggle. It's the ultimate poor slash working class anthem, right? Because and and over here, 
if you're American and, and listening to this and you haven't really, you know, inter- been introduced to pulp, I mean, if you've ever had the, 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 the struggle, you know, growing up poor or working class or wondering, you know, if you've got enough food to put on the table or the, the place that you're renting, the apartment trailer or whatever is crap and... You know, it's just funky and you're struggling again. Then here comes, here walks in somebody, you know, with with money and heirs who, who thinks that they can just join in wherever you are, you know? Yes. That's, uh, which is the basis of the song, but it's so relatable. Definitely. Definitely. It's, you know, it strikes a chord with me a lot. Right. Because, you know, I did grow up in, in similar environment. Right, yes. Um, and... It just everything everything he wrote, not just common people, but everything he wrote was ult- ultimately relatable to the kids and to the people who listened to it. Right. In my opinion, it is a shame that Pulp were around at the same time as Oasis and Blue, because they would have been so much bigger. They were big in Britain, but they could have been so much bigger if they weren't not overshadowed, but I mean the antics of of the Gallagher brothers. And the sniping by Blur, and well, I mean to be to make that statement fair, you would need to say that it it would have been better for Pulp if they had released this album and this is hardcore and whatnot earlier because Pulp were around long yeah. before. Yeah, I mean the, uh... Pulp were were active in eighty five. Yep, and it just took him a long while to do that, and I think Jarvis went off to went back to college to get right. his 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 degrees and stuff like that. Um, but again, you know, it's just great band, great album, absolutely fantastic. Struck a chord with a lot of people correctly. Jarvis Cocker was this weird blend. Uh, Jarvis Cocker was an enigma, in, in for lack of a better term. Yes, he's this tall, pasty, pale, skinny guy with gigantic glasses, and he looks like Harry Potter's uncle. Yes, but <laughs> but sings like this awesome British Barry White type. I mean, oh, baby. Barry White mixed with Frank Sinatra. I adore him. And of course, 95% of Pulp songs are about sex. Well, yes. He's Jarvis is the ultimate king of writing a song about how he wants to get laid. That's... <laughs> yes. Yes. But, um... No, I mean, just... And, and to touch back on Common People one more time. If you can't tell, I really like that song. Yes. It's just, if you've ever, ever, ever been frustrated when somebody who seems to have been born and come from everything, you know, like, daddy's taking care of this, and da 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 and they, or, you know, somebody who's, who, who's got all of their stuff taken care of, but wants to tell you about how hard life is. Correct. Oh. Yeah, I, I hate those people. Yes. This is this is definitely yeah. And the people who've, who've crawled out of that through a combination of luck and timing, and when people are trying to do the same thing, and you get told a hundred stories about, you know, how they had like ten bucks of their name and a beat up car, and now they're a multi-trillionaire, and because they had the right time to, you, you know, right. I mean? it's just yeah. Well, no, those stories I like, but well, it's I like okay. them too. But when they look down on on your story, oh yeah, yeah, that's when, what I yeah, mean. yeah. When somebody's condescending and you're just like, look at her, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's a nine out of ten album. 
Yes. It is definitely a 9 out of 10 album. But unlike the other albums that we've talking about today, this was a UK-only album. Yes. That didn't even break anything in any other countries. I mean... Oh, well, yeah, because like you said, pop is very Brit-centric. Yeah. I mean, even, it struggled in Ireland even, which I would, you know, I, I'm surprised by that because it was a big hit in Wales. And the thing I can say about the Irish being Welsh is that they are our more famous cousins, for lack of a better right. term. You know, and we, we share a lot of lot of ideals, shall we say. You know, and I'm surprised it didn't take off there as much as, say, some of the other albums did. So, we come to the final album that we're going to be talking about. Yay! And this is the this is the this another reason why I put it on list, because I, I know this album more than the others. Yes. And this is where you hear... This is where you hear Mr. and Mrs. Connolly get into an argument. Yes. What's the story? Morning Glory by Yay! Oasis. Oasis' second album. Yes. 24 million copies. If you were American, this is... It's a high chance that this is the album that introduced you to Oasis. Correct. Um, considered possibly the greatest album of, by a UK band in that era. Certainly the biggest selling. It, it right. selling 24 million copies was the largest selling album by a British band or artist in the 90s. Yes. Um, strangely enough, this is considered a masterpiece by a lot of critics and a lot of fans. When it came down the pike, the reviews were mixed. Enemy, three out of ten. Q, two stars. The two biggest music magazines in the UK, and just, they they weren't feeling it. Now, at the time, of course, the enemy was completely had their nose right up blue. You know, that was just... <laughs> well, we'll I mean, that okay, next week. yeah, that and... Are we covering? Are we covering the rivalry next week? We are going to be covering a lot of the rivalry next week because okay. that okay. Do, that dominated the the peak, right? Because because in it, I told you guys leave this in here. I told you guys Hamilton everywhere. You'll have to still listen to outtakes for that. Anyway, Ugh. yes. Huh? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, how much of that though? You know, yes, reviews were were mixed, and and a lot of the the main British press outlets were, you know, anti what's the story, Morning Glory. But how much of that was them pushing back with, and as much as I love my boys, the Gallagher's attitude at the time? Because if somebody comes in there, swaggering, you know, they already had some success. True. With, with definitely maybe, and so they come in and they're like, here, this is my opus. And you suck. If you don't think this is the best thing you've ever heard in your entire life, you're stupid and you suck and, you know, whatever. And so there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to be like, on principle. True. I mean. Until they've listened to it. And that's true. And going to what Sarah said, a lot of uh, book recommendation for any Oasis fan that doesn't have it. I recommend the book Getting High by Paolo Hewitt. Yes. That covers a lot of this stuff. And in fact, a lot of my research on Oasis came came from that book. Um, but um, yeah, you're right. I mean, not, not only and we're saying this is the best, this is the best, this is the best. On the counterpoint, though, you could kind of see where the reviewers were coming from because you well, had they based it off of you know she's electric and possibly and the failed Glastonbury set because the Glastonbury set sucked. They always has headline Glastonbury in '95. Uh-huh. Uh, Mark Hall was the engineer who was going deaf, right? And they had to set up the sound as they were doing the the sound check. They did right. the sound check as their very first song on the, on the thing. Uh, the Swamp Song, the instrumental. And I'm not a fan of the Swamp Song. True. Interesting fact. There are some people that are. I like it. I'm not a fan. It's because of those two little snippets that are in Morning Glory that kind of it yeah. cuts it up. But they went from, 
having this punky sounding rock sound with Tony right. Carroll's drumming and very, very rocking energy to the first tr- track, having Electronica and Alan White as much as I love as a drummer. Possibly, you know, Whitey the best is of his, the bomb. Wh- the best of his generation. Right. His drumming style was completely different and more of a funky R and B jazzy style. Uh-huh. And then you throw that, you tack that onto a rock band, and while it helped create the unique sound, you could see why the first couple of listens you're not used to, you know, simple basic right. drum beats. That's why some might say stands out like a sore thumb when you listen through the album. Yeah, I can see that. Um. But you are, but you are right in a way that you know the arrogance and the turn people off. Yeah, turn a lot of people off. Um, yeah, you know because they were telling with this anybody who would listen. I mean, this is back then, and I think. Okay, here's the thing: they're they're never going to grow out of that. No, you know, God bless them with confidence out the yin yang, right? They they're, <laughs> they're never going to grow out of the. But I will say that. As they've gotten older, Noel and Liam have become a lot more um, refined in how they, they dole that out. Um, well, Noel just says, look, aren't I great? And Liam will call you a potato. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. But back then, I mean, Noel would be like, look, you know, I just dropped this chewing gum wrapper on the ground. Isn't this the best chewing gum yes. wrapper in the history of chewing gum wrappers? Why aren't you down here worshipping my chewing gum wrapper? I mean, this is to, to who be they fair, were. he's still like that, though. He is, but he's not as much in your face about it. No, whereas Liam... I mean, you know, now he'll just look at you he's like, we both know yeah. that's the best. But you know what? You do you. That's where Noel's at now. He's... And he, Liam he, is still Bart Simpson banging on the cans. Ain't not great. Everybody loves me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Liam, you know. Now, with, with the reviews... They did. Right. Get, they did get better in the weeks ahead. The right. like the enemy young Hugh did re-review the album, um, especially after listening to Head to Head, Oasis, Morning Glory, and Blues Great Escape. They listened them back to back and kind right. of the opinion flipped. You know, everybody said that the Great Escape was the greatest album of all time, and subsequent listens, it's dreadful. And I agree with that. I'm I'm sorry. Any Blue fans who are listening, I'm sorry. The Great Escape was a dreadful album. And if you can tell me why it's a great album, I will listen. But it's not. Doesn't mean I don't like Blue. As I mentioned last week, I love Blue. I love 13. I thought Park Life was fantastic. The Great Escape, not so much. Look at his chewing gum wrapper. Isn't it the greatest chewing gum wrapper? It is the greatest chewing gum wrapper. You'll never Um, convince him that his chewing gum wrapper is not the greatest. (laughs) Um, I will touch one thing before we move forward. Um, To me, well, it's not as much to me. Because, you know, um, of course, um, I'm a, a huge Oasis fan. Yes. And I'm married to you. Of course. So, um, and this is one thing that we will touch on in upcoming weeks, just in general. UK, the UK is very uh, festival-based. Correct. And that didn't really happen for us. Of course, now, you know, we have Coachella. That's South really... South by Southwest. Huh? South by Southwest. South by Southwest, yes. But um, up until... Not saying that music festivals didn't happen, but up until like '94 when they redid Woodstock, that was not really a thing True. here. So I mean, you know, not, it wasn't as much of a, of a of a scene, and so the concept of for Americans of somebody basing an album on a performance at uh, judging a whole album based on a performance at a music festival 
you know, we all kind of do the confused puppy dog. Uh. That's true. But then again, that's that's been the British music press MO. And especially right. when it comes to Oasis. Right. I think if Oasis was smart or the Gallagher brothers were smart, they would never play Glastonbury ever again. They played it in 94 uh-huh. and they were like on one of the smaller stages because they, they hadn't made it yet. I mean, definitely maybe hadn't been released yet and the singles right. hadn't broken the top 10. They were getting there, but they weren't. It wasn't warranted a biggest biggest stage right. spot. They headlined in ninety five and two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. Both the performances in ninety five and two thousand and four right. were absolutely ridiculed by the British music press, and yes. whatever new material was played was absolutely laughed away. You had "Morning Glory" was laughed away. "Don't Look Back in Anger" was laughed away. Right. Uh, some might say they broke out some of the older B sides. I say older B sides. You know the ones from. The McCarley or It's Good to Be Free, The Head right. Shrinker, and so on, to kind of patch the set up because it just didn't look like it was going right. And then in 2004, when they played Glastonbury, they played uh, A Bell Will Ring, I think it's called. Yes. I love that song. I'm sorry. And uh, The Mean in a Soul. Not their right. best songs off that album that came out. The, uh, Don't Believe the Truth came out a year later, but they still got Savage for it. Right. So I think Glastonbury is kind of the. If you're a new. If you're established act releasing new material. The lesson is, don't preview a whole bunch of new material at Glastonbury, you'll get savage for it. That, and if you're in a band and get invited to Glasto, bring your freaking A-game. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Redding or Glasto, bring your freaking A-game. Okay, we um, get sidetracked because, sorry. yeah. But it, that, that's good, that's good. Um, This album kind of helped bring out more of the guitar scene in the UK. Yes. It was, it was, it was, it needed a spark. It needed something to shine a light on 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 the guitarists that were in the uk at the time and right. i think this was a very very this can be pointed as, as the spark um this could also be um you know the whole thing where the, the beetle comparison came in yeah because back in the 60s when the beatles came in you know they were told guitar bands were on the way out exactly and oasis were told the same thing pretty much now granted because of gallagher's gallagher um you know and I, and I love them i love all of them but um you know, this is it's the it's the Irish inside. You tell an Irishman yes. they can't, that that something's going wrong, and they they're gonna do it perfectly just to spite. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this led to this album was the basis of basically the backbone of Oasis, the backbone of what the Britpop scene was right. in ninety five to ninety six, and it led to Nebworth Park, like the Spike Island gig. Yes. Like I mentioned last week, the apex of a movement. Not the best gig that the band ever did, but just the moment was there. Yes. I mean, Oasis fans, look, I'm one of you guys. I love Oasis. You know that. But in my opinion, Oasis' best gigs were Main Road in 1996. I still have my Main Road t-shirt. You do? I do. It's in the closet. And believe it or not, this one, Glasgow 2001 at the Barrowland. Glasgow. Okay. That sm- a small little intimate gig that they did just yes. after the Brotherly Love tour. Yes. It was, you know, it was just a, like a 10 year, the, the 10 years of Noise and Confusion right. tour. I thought that was their best gig and the biggest gig in t- in terms of what was great was Main Road rather than Nebula. Right. Um, it did... Ha! Ah! Ha! That was his phone! Ha! Don't get this. I'll cut you off one out too. We'll call it one off. Okay? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. He'll cut what he wants. That's right. It's my podcast now. I'm producer. Anyway, um, this album was not the start of the Cool Britannia scene, but it definitely was the spark that kind of set it ablaze and made everybody. Well, it it made Oasis synonymous with Britpop, at least internationally. Yes. 
And nationally, too. And, okay. But I know internationally, I mean, you know, you've got Noel and his Union Jack guitar. And, you know, there's... Um, and even in our gossip rags, you know, he and and his wife, or I think they were girl, they were just dating at the time, Meg. But, um, you know, he and Meg are vacationing with Kate Moss, who was, you know, if there was a model that, that defined the 90s, she yeah. was up there. And and her boyfriend at the time, Johnny Depp. Yep. So, I mean, you've got, I mean, Oasis became the face of that, of, of Britpop and Cole Britannia. Yeah. And and I agree they completely were. They took, you know, they made the Evening Jack a kind of, I suppose we'd say, they made, they made it kind of a fashion statement as opposed to... Well, yeah, until Jerry Halliwell came out with it, you know, bedazzled and, yeah, and with their... Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of, yeah. We'll talk about the Spice Girls next week. I love the Spice Girls. I know you do. Um, the album itself. Let's go Let's go back to the album itself, because we've talked a lot about, uh, we've, we've talked a lot around, and the only thing we haven't talked about is the album. And in my humble opinion... Uh-huh. For the first four out of the first six songs on What's the Story, Morning Glory, uh-huh. I can honestly agree with the critics. I can see why it was given a so-so review rather than the euphoric one that people associate with it. Okay. Um, Hello? Yeah. Roll with it? Yep. Hey Now? Yep. And that instrumental? Mm. You cut it off and you replace it with Acquiesce. Right. Underneath the Sky. Yep. Round Our Way. Yep. The Master Plan. With you. You take She's Electric off. You take that second instrumental. You don't take... Sh- you take She's Electric. No! No! No, no, no. Sorry. In my opinion, you got to take She's Electric off. And you add the B-sounds that came from the Master Plan era, and boom, that album, that album, that album I need my best. silly, though. I mean, here's the thing. That was the one thing, you know, we're, we're bigger than the Beatles. That yeah. was the that was the most Beatles sounding song on the entire album. True. I mean, it was. It, it, it and it, 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 it it's... Uh, I'm just, <laughs> it's it's a very good song. It is. It is Noel Gallagher's best. It's my use. It, it's my happy bounce around song. It's his best use of um, metaphor. Well, I mean, that also ever, that that, that album Noel was still very much in his Doctor Seuss lyric stage. Yes. Then. Oh, so. yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of the songs on the album, and I did the, when I, we are going to go through this with the bigger review of Morning Glory that we do in a couple of months. Right. And a lot of the songs were one verse. One chorus. Right. Hey, let's repeat it because it sounded so great the first time. Yeah. Roll with it. Wonderwall. Yeah. Hey now. Yeah. Cast no shadow. Morning glory. Champagne supernova. All of them had one verse, one chorus. A couple right. of them had a second verse, but that first verse got repeated again and repeated again and repeated right. again. Right. Um. Again, it's a strong album, but it's not always his best work, in my opinion. I'll agree with you, but we both disagree on what was their best work. What's their best work? I would say Sotsog. Really? Yes. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, a couple of years ago on Facebook, I wrote I was one of the 12 <laughs> people who like Be Here Now. I finally have found the person who likes Standing on the Shoulder of Giants. <laughs> and I can see, no, but the thing is, I can see where you're coming from. I can well, absolutely well, also, see where you're I mean, coming from. The thing from. about it is, is about Sotsog is, it, and of course, that's a whole nother... We we could do, and I don't even think that technically falls. That was what two thousand. It was two thousand, but the Ish. first singles were released in January, so I'm giving it a pass. Well, yeah, but it was leaked in '99. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you the, know, the demos that uh, Bonnet leaked. 
Was it no? It no, was Whitey. <laughs> yeah, Whitey leaked the demos. Yes. Appa- apparently, let me let me let me okay. get my legal allegedly list. allegedly the great Alan White released the demos. Yes. And the uh, demos for the Heathen Chemistry that came out. Yes. And when that was found out, Liam kicked him out the band. Supposedly. Allegedly. Now that's probably not true. If but you have your ear to the ground, and you know. Yeah. If you have your ear to the ground, no. Because nobody knows why Alan White left Oasis, and I st- that that's one thing I need to know. I need to, I need that closure. Bonehead left because he was done after Bonehead the- wanted to go spend time with his kid, man. Bonehead wanted to spend some time with his kid. And there's also stories of partially because of the no alcohol rule and he got into a big argument with Noel about it and left. Wigsy left because, well, Bonehead and Wigsy were joined at the hip, for lack of a better term. And and to be fair to Wigsy- Wigsy needed quiet. He, yeah. He, Wigsy was the least comfortable with the with fame and, the, and everything. Yeah. He just wanted, he wanted to go home. Yeah. And wanted to be anonymous again. And to be fair, he's com- stayed completely out of the spotlight. God bless him. But Whitey, man, great drummer. And in my opinion, part of the reason why Oasis's albums from Be Here Now through to Heathen Chemistry didn't resonate as well as they maybe should have because of his drumming style. Not that he's a bad drummer. That's not what I'm saying. But his style, he drummed one way, just like McCarroll only drummed one way. And... Some of the different ways that Oasis tried to put beats down right. were, you know, were different. But that, again, that's another story for another time. Yeah, we'll compare all these later. Worldwide smash hit album. I, I mean, to this day, uh, KT Turnstall, uh, Turnstall, excuse me, oh, and uh, J.K. Rowling have both gone on record and said that, you know, Wonderwall is like a national anthem in the UK. <sighs> so, you know, it's God Save the Queen and Wonderwall. I'll be completely honest. I'm not a fan of Wonderwall. <gasps> Blaspheme. Let me rephrase that. You, you shall a- not blaspheme. If you ask me my top ten favorite Oasis songs, uh-huh. Wonderwall isn't there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I know. Mm. And with with all due respect to your opinion, I think this last <laughs> with all due respect with this last year has proven that the unofficial national anthem of Great Britain is Don't Look Back in It. Uh. Which is the greatest song that Noel Gallagher ever wrote, in my humble opinion. Um, other notable tracks were Wonderwall, some might say, which featured the most goofiest uh, lyrics that Noel uh, ever wrote. Again, this is the Dr. Seuss era. The but, sink is full of fishes. Yeah. She's got dirty D- dishes, dishes on the, the brain. brain. And, and you can't defend that as a terrible, terrible lyric. But literally 20 seconds before that, he said, some might say you don't believe in heaven. Well, tell that to the man that lives in hell. I think that's a fantastic yes. lyric. That's probably one of the best he ever wrote. Right. A, a minute later, fishes, dishes. Ah, okay, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I think it was just a, a case of, you know, he's he's had all these songs in his head. And, um, you know, he had these these wonderful one or two lines. And the rest of it, it's Noel being Noel. Yes. And... These lines are so great that they'll carry the rest of it. Maybe, maybe. I mean, and, and that's 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 a good way to uh, good way to think about it. My opinion, six out of ten. Your opinion? Oh. Um. See, critically or emotionally, because this album Personally, is what 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 does what if when Sarah listens to this album, does Sarah think this is a great album, a crap album, or a so-so album? For me, it's six out of ten. This is a great album. Okay. Because I mean, this 
this album for me started it all. I mean, I didn't realize that I had heard Oasis before. I had heard Live Forever partially on the radio before and didn't realize it. But, um, you know, I'll never forget the first time that I saw Wonderwall on MTV. True. You know, listen, kids, that's back when MTV used to play music videos, but... Music oh, they television. brought TRL Bot back. They did. Yes. They did. I might have to talk about TRL more, Tom. Okay. But, uh, um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that album is so iconic for me. True. And that represents just so much of, of my... Musical... My musical coming of age. And I know you had a lot of other things too so, with, yeah. you know, with 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 the, the the girl acts as, as you call them. Yes. And but um, to to me, I guess I, I don't want to use the whole world being British, but I mean, how many times has that has Morning Glory been? How many times you Wonderwall has been on the jukebox? How many times has Wonderwall been played at the pub or at the karaoke or Wonderwall to me? Wonderwall is your sweet home, Alabama. Yeah, we just can't get away from it, no matter how how hard we try. And it's just been overplayed and overplayed and overplayed and overplayed and overplayed and overplayed. And it's just to the point now where, you know, I can't, I, I, I can't listen to it as much anymore because right. I've heard it so many times. But the rest of the songs around it, like I said, the second half of that album is iconic. The first half of that album, you only have two great songs and it's brought down. Right. And that's why, that's why I think it's only six out of ten. Um, these four albums are considered the best work of the major players of the scene. Do you agree with that? Um, yes. Well, I mean, I, I can see where some would say that, yes. Okay. Um, they're also, not only that, but they're also considered some of the better albums that British music has released in the past 30 years. I don't agree with that. Really? We'll have to, we'll have to continue this discussion we'll continue, later. We'll continue that next week. Um, in my opinion, uh, Morning Glory is not Oasis' best work. There's too many flaws. Not as good as their debut. And as a whole, probably the best album, the, the second best album they did, but as far as original material, Don't Believe the Truth, They Got You Soul, The Master Plan. Sock, they, sock. they all have better individual songs. Right. So, you know. Uh, Park Life. Shangri-La. Shangri-La. Park Life. Great album, but do you agree that it's not Blue's best work? Uh, correct. Okay. In my opinion, as I mentioned before, Park Life's a great album, but Blue is the best album that Blue released. Yes. Um, um, I'm in total accord with you there. And Pulp and the Verve. Unfortunately, this was their peak. No. No? No, not the Pulp. The Verve, yes, not Pulp. pulp. Not Pulp. You this thought, is hardcore. This is hardcore was... I mean, this is hardcore for me, anyway. I mean, you look at, at Pulp and you've got those, you know, the main three notable tracks being Common People, Something's Changed, and Disco 2000. I mean, which... Uh, which was Pulp's 1999. Um, <laughs> but you, you, this is hardcore. is full from beginning to end of just awesomeness. So, I mean, that's basically it. I mean, you know, we, 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 we this has been a great conversation. I thank you for, for sharing it with me. Thank Anytime. you for bringing me great debate and some great stuff that will probably not make it air. Uh, <laughs> but because of this, this week's social media question is revolving around these four albums. Okay. This week, I have to ask, which one of these four is the best album of Britpop? Ooh. It's a tough one. It is a tough one because, 
like most things in Britain, it's very, very tribal. You have your blue fans, you have your racist fans, your pulp fans, and your voo fans, and they can't agree on anything. So I'm asking you guys no, this. Fundamentally, can't agree on anything. Right. So which was the best album? Morning Glory, Park Life, Urban Hymns, or Different Class? We have our social media websites. Go to any of them, because maybe podcast on, right. tw- on Facebook, because maybe pod on Twitter and Tumblr, and just tell us which was the best album. Tell us. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your absolutely hectic schedule to <laughs> come and shoot the breeze with us for, for about an hour or so. Um, we look forward to speaking again next week yes. where we go into the final part of our history of Britpop. Yes. But for now, see you then. Bye. Freddie Mercury was the phenomenal singer of Queen. He had the voice of a god. He could sing in many ranges. Four octave range. Four octaves. He was a great pianist. But he didn't think so. He was a flamboyant showman. Completely known for his performances. He once performed with the Royal Ballet. Carried around by shirtless male ballerinas. He was also an accomplished artist. He designed the band's Royal Crest logo, which incorporated every member's zodiac sign. His singing saw range from rock and pop to opera and classical. In the 80s, he started getting sick and started appearing less and less. Deathly ill, and six weeks before he died, he recorded The Show Must Go On in one take. Only one take. In 1991, he announced that he had AIDS. The next day, he was dead. The world of music had lost a hero. Freddie Mercury, the ultimate legend. Perhaps the greatest singer of all time. He will always be missed. Okay, that's almost this week, guys. I know we've gone through a lot this episode, and we've just got a little bit more before we uh, we call it a day. Um, if you guys are on social media, Facebook, go to Because Maybe Podcast, Twitter and Tumblr, go to Because Maybe Pod. Just look us up. That way you'll find out, you know, what's coming up soon, some news, you know, the usual things you find on these social media websites. And as mentioned, they were moderated by both myself and my wife, and we are looking for people who know more about how to use Facebook uh, to kind of help us along. Uh, if you have any ideas, go to uh, your email and type in becausemaybepodcast at gmail.com and send me an email and I will pick your brains if you've got the time to, to let me do that. Uh, this week's social media question. Just like last week, it is a simple, simple, simple question. Which was the best album of Britpop out of the four that we've covered? Was it Morning Glory, Park Life, A Different Class, or Urban Hymns? You hear our opinions? Now I'd love to hear yours. Next week, we are going to have our final, final part of our three-week Britpop. Uh, it's going to be basically the peak and the downfall and a spirited debate about the merits of the spy skills by the sounds of things, uh, as well as just a couple of, you know, the American point of view. I know uh, a lot of my audience is split between both sides of the pond, kind of like my life right now. But I've been saying it from a British point of view where everything happened. I'd like to, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Sarah explain how it was perceived in the United States. And finally, before we go, um, I didn't want to, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier and I didn't want to leave this hanging. Uh, this year, I am proud to announce that I will be taking part in the annual Movember. Uh, I have done this for a couple of years and I've always donated what I could and uh, I plan on doing the same thing this year. Um, I'm personally donating $25 
and I know some people say only 25 bucks, but you know, 25 bucks. Um, I'm hoping to, with your guys' help, to get those donations up to 100 bucks. Now, again, it doesn't sound like much, but every every nickel helps. Um, this is important to me um, from a personal point of view. Um, I don't want to get too personal and too gross, but uh, I am 33 years old. And I have twice in my life had scares when it's come to, uh, let's not beat around the bush. Whenever it's come to b- cancer, I have had two scares in my lifetime. Uh, once, ironically, was on the same day as something really, really bad happened to my dad. And once was a couple of years ago. And both times I got the all clear. Um, both times I was panicked and then completely utterly relieved. But um, it's important to me because, you know, I, that kind of thing frightens me, especially since I've had a couple of scares. Um, also, you know, this kind of men's health isn't really as talked about as much as a lot of others. Uh, the Movember Foundation also, you know, aside from growing the, the mustache, which a lot of people think is gimmicky, it does send a lot of money to research for testicular and prostate cancer. And also men's mental health, which is nowhere near uh, talked about in society as it should be. Um, you hear soccer players in the UK, you hear football players over here, uh, professional athletes, you know, and it's just not talked about because a lot of people seem to think just because you have a shit ton of money that you should be happy all the time. And, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. It doesn't. Although it is, you know, it is better to be on the side of the recline into a Mercedes than it is into a broken down larder. But, um, you know, humans are humans, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are thing about these diseases is that they don't discriminate they don't discriminate against uh race they don't discriminate against age religion sexuality if you if you're gonna get them you'll get them and that's a sobering thought so to me as far as i'm concerned i'd like to do whatever i can uh to help eradicate these from the world as much as i could um so like i said but i'll be personally pledging 25 bucks to the charity and i encourage everybody if everybody who's listening uh, if you are male uh related to somebody who is male or are in love with somebody who is male make sure that they look after themselves make sure that they're taken care of because this can be ignored very very quickly and it can overtake you very very quickly so what i will be doing is i will be on october 31st on halloween i will be transforming my face into a potato uh, I'll be shaving off what facial hair I have now, and then I will be growing just this magnificent, beautiful, non-creepy-looking moustache. <laughs> and, you know, I encourage all, all the guys who are listening to do exactly the same. If you are capable of growing facial hair, and you have a spare ten bucks, get involved. It's a worthy, worthy cause, and it's something that I personally will ultimately respect you for for a long, long time. So, um, yeah, so like I said, every week I'll post a new picture of the old uh, push broom, and uh, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be a nice way to, um, you know, to, to, to raise awareness and raise money, because, again, you know, we've had things over the last couple of years, like the Ice Bucket Challenge, and a lot of people didn't, you know, a lot of people poured water over their heads and didn't put a nickel into the fund, and I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm putting my money where my mouth is, and I encourage and I hope everybody joins me. Uh, I'll be putting everything that I've just said down in text form 
I'll upload the blog uh, tomorrow or the next day, and with more information on how you can join—I say join my team—but how you can donate and so on and so forth, and you know how we can move forward. So that is it for this week, guys. Thank you very much, and I look forward to talking at you all next week. Shut the bathroom door. Thank you.